You're listening to the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReport.com. Join us each week as we discuss each new episode. We want to hear what you think of this new Star Wars series. Send us an email or an MP3 at RebelsRoundtable at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash RebelsRoundtable, on Twitter at RebelsRound, or on our website, RebelsRoundtable.com. It's a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. So strap yourselves in, and welcome to the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Rebels Roundtable. I'm Jonathan, and today we're discussing Episode 5 of Season 1, Pitch Black. Oh, I'm sorry, I mean Out of Darkness. And joining me to discuss this little romp are Mark. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Barrent. Hey, everybody. Good to be back. Very exciting episode to talk about. And the professor himself, Nathan. Hey, all. Somewhere in here, I'm sure there'll be a way to make this my fault. We've talked about it before, and a lot of the internet buzz on this episode is that we're getting another filler. And I'm not sure I completely agree with that, but before I give my impressions, why don't you each, you know, give me just sort of a brief synopsis on what you thought of it. And Nathan, why don't you kick us off? This is new. I'm so unprepared. I go first. It's a filler episode, but it's not quite a filler episode. It's kind of like what we looked at with Fight or Flight, about how it's a filler episode. It gives us the character moments to develop them, but it begs the question of whether certain elements would wind up coming back. And that if they did, kind of like droids in distress too, if they did then it served its purpose. It acts to seed those storylines along. I made the reference then, I'll make it now. It's the Babylon 5 machine that heals people by sucking life from one character to another. It seems insignificant for just a quick filler episode early on. Eventually it winds up paying off in a big way seasons or storylines later. With Fight or Flight, it wasn't something that was quite so obvious that there would be much of a payoff or a connection besides maybe a mention to that episode. This episode really felt like it was laying the groundwork for a mystery we will eventually find out more about when it comes to Sabine's background, the identity and role of this fulcrum character, this informant-type character they've got. It's just kind of one of those things where I'm torn between calling it filler and not. Suffice to say, maybe we could call it just filler with a purpose in this case. Yeah, I got to agree a lot with that assessment. I mean, mainly I think of it like Supernatural's filler episodes. I mean, you know, every now and again, you think you got like a one and done and, it, and it's all self-contained. And then all of a sudden a season or two go by and all of a sudden they're bringing the trickster back and you're like, oh, there's a whole side story. And then three more seasons go back and you find out the trickster's an angel and you're like, wait, what's going on? So, I mean, I, I see where the, the groundwork for that stuff is there. But when I was watching the episode, I did get that feel like, you know, it, it was a filler in the aspect of it, it wasn't driving a lot of the action. But there was a lot of backstory going on, especially for Sabine. And and I actually I thought it was kind of cool the fact that, you know, Hera was the one in charge of basically she's the heart of the rebellion for the group. And, you know, she even says it at one point, she's like, you know, you can't give up what you don't know. And. The fact that she's in the position of, of, you know, choosing who gets to know what and all that kind of stuff. I thought it was kind of interesting, the dynamic that played out between them. And for me, I mean, I don't know, maybe I just wasn't paying that much attention, but I always saw Sabine as, as 18 to 20. 
this episode came out and I was doing a little more research on her and found out she was only 16. And I was kind of like, oh, that makes a little more sense why you're not going to have her be a little in and on the know. I mean, you know, there's that book coming out with uh, she's got a journal and stuff and she's just writing all over it about being a rebel and everything. And I'm like, man. If an Inquisitor got a hold of her book, like, she pretty much gives away every detail ever. Like, I would totally keep her out of it, too. (laughs) You know, and for me, if this was a filler episode, this was a filler episode I would like. You know, you did get a little background story. Uh, There are a few questions I have about Sabine, like the absence of a jetpack. This is kind of the first time I realized that she's a Mandalorian, or we assume she's a Mandalorian, and she doesn't have a jetpack. So maybe that's a story that we'll get in the future, why she doesn't have one, or maybe while she get one. But that's something I kind of missed. And, you know, Mark, you are right. Hera is in charge. You know, she's in charge of her. It's her ship. Mm-hmm. She might actually be the leader of... Uh, she's definitely the leader of the Rebellion. She definitely has all these contacts. And it's kind of refreshing to have her in charge instead of Kanan, uh, who's kind of, I think, most people thought was the de facto leader. I don't think that's the case at all. I think it is Hera. And it's kind of interesting to, you know, have the dynamic of who to trust and who not to trust. And, you know, what difference does it make if she tells everybody everything? If anybody gets captured, they'll just go on to the Star Destroyer and rescue them. So, (laughs) but uh, we'll get into Pitch Black. I mean, Out of Darkness. And uh, I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say about it. Well, it's interesting that you say that you guys feel that Hera is the leader. I kind of feel like it's sort of like a, a shared leadership between her and Kanan. And at one point later in the episode, Hera does say to Sabine that she needs to trust Kanan, that Kanan knows what he's doing. So I think in some ways Hera even defers to Kanan as the leader. Well, remember, we're at the point now where it's been, was it, six years, I guess, since A New Dawn, and when we were first introduced to these characters, Hera was definitely the one who was the woman on a mission. Kanan was just this kind of sort of wandering former Jedi trying not to get caught and always avoiding all these attachments and connections, not because of the Jedi teaching, but because he didn't want to be found out. And she's the one who was always, you know, I'm on the mission, I'm on the mission. You're not coming with me unless you're part of this mission. She blows off so many times telling him he's just not in the right mindset before there's ever any chance of those two really being able to work together. So, uh, I mean, Kanan may be stepping up as a leader here, but Harris seems like the only one that, that Lucasfilm and putting all this together, the, the whole broader story group canon stuff now, has had as a leadership figure the entire way through, which is in keeping with their whole female character empowerment thing that they really went into with Ahsoka. Uh, Hera becomes the the central leader figure in all this. And that makes a lot of sense because when I went to the WonderCon Rebels panel and I was able to talk to Filoni and some of the remarks he made to the crowd, he did say that Hera was not going to be your average female Star Wars character, that she was going to be on the same level as anybody else. And just like Filoni that I know and love over the years, Basically, what he says is pretty much how things happen. So it's it's really refreshing to have this come to fruition. And, you know, Hera's going to be a character. I said it before. Hera's going to be a character that's going to be a fan favorite, especially not only for empowering females and the female generation, female fans out there, but for the males as well. Well, I got a question about Hera. I mean, she makes a comment about how no pilot in the Empire can outrace her or outfly her. And I'm like, is Han a pilot in the Empire at this point? I- 
or does that even still count? <laughs> I don't think it counts, right? It's all legends now. We don't know. Yeah, it might still be legends. But, you know, you guys are talking about Hera. In my mind, and one of the reasons I really like this episode is because it's Sabine's episode. We learn Sabine's backstory, which is something I was so excited to get. We learn later that Sabine, you know, not only coming from Mandalore, she was actually in the Imperial Academy on Mandalore, and something happened there, something that I almost want to say damaged her. And what's interesting is we saw a whole different side. I'd always kind of seen Sabine as you know, what we've talked about, maybe not being entirely there, being a little bit of a pyromaniac. But there's a serious edgy side to her. She not only wants to cause the Empire trouble, she wants to be sure that she's doing the right thing. This is a whole nother dynamic to her, and I'm really hoping that they kind of pick this up and run with it. Going through the episode, as Mark said, it opens up with Hera, Sabine, and Ezra in the Phantom after a what looks like an, an assault on an Imperial convoy running from a small squadron of ties. And I think it's a pretty good action sequence. We do see that Hera is a good pilot, but as last week, we, we see that Hera is not only piloting, she's controlling a turret that's firing behind them. And I, again, this is, this is something that kind of takes me out because I keep wondering, I mean, how exactly is she both piloting and firing the cannon? I mean, is she using her Leku? <laughs> <laughs> I'm very much betting that it's one of these, you know, the ghost is a special ship type of things we keep hearing but haven't really seen much uh, to actually, you know, justify those types of comments. Although at least this week, we start to get a sense of, uh, of the Legos being true, I suppose. One of the ongoing things, and it's something that Mark brought up in, in the past, was the whole issue of how is it that you could have them flying and have certain views from the Phantom. Well, in this episode, we've got them docking nose first, and then we see them flying when they're doing the repair checks and everything, and we're seeing out the windshield, or whatever you want to call it, the viewport, into hyperspace, which means it must be pointing the opposite direction, and it looks like they're attached essentially right by the hatch, because you can look straight through where they were standing back at the beginning of the episode, and they must have detached, flipped it around, and connected back before doing their little run uh, in order for that to make sense, which finally alleviates the thing where some of the viewers or the listeners to the show were out there talking about how it seemed odd that the Legos seemed to attach the Phantom one direction and the show tended to do it the other. Well, apparently, I guess you can do it both. At least this episode seemed to suggest that. Yeah, that was something that was really driving me nuts. I mean, I watched this one about three or four times just because of that. When we see... Zeb and Ezra doing their repair diagnostic on it and stuff. You see the hyperspace outside. And that really struck me when I first had seen the episode. So I went back and I was watching it and watching how, you know, not only when they, they park and stuff, how the Phantom's exit hatch lifts up, but it also had what looked like a, a, a hatch in the bulkhead of that part that lifted up. Plus, when they were getting in and out of the ship, when it docked in face first they were going down through the little hole that was right behind the pilot seat. So there was a lot of really cool details in that regard. Like when they're doing the diagnosis, you know, they're actually, Zeb is in the Phantom, or no, he's in the Ghost and Ezra's in the Phantom. And they're like literally standing right at that, that hatch right there. And you could see the other hole that Hera had gone through when they first docked and they come down and it goes right down into the galley. 
Like, man, I'm more and more I can't wait to see, like, a cross-section book of this ship because this ship's pretty cool. Like, when they jump to hyperspace and stuff, it's got that open cockpit view, and you can see the star lines down below Hera's feet as well as just in front of her. Like, I, I just – everything about the Ghost is a cool ship, and the Phantom sounds cool too. I mean, just being able to, to verify that it does indeed dock both ways is a really cool modification. I mean, you know, I, I've played uh, role-playing games and stuff and got the, the starship, you know, guide to the – Starfighters of the Galaxy and whatnot, and built my own ships. And that's kind of features and stuff are, are expensive for your character. So, to, Hera having a ship that graphically cool and all that kind of stuff, and what she does at the end of the episode with the, the outside of the hole, the ship's got a lot of characteristics in and of itself. The Ghost is, and I said it last week, the Ghost is on par with the Millennium Falcon. It might be the coolest ship since the Millennium Falcon, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys have talked about how. Zeb and Ezra and Chopper are, you know, repairing the Phantom after Hera bangs it up a little bit after her encounter with the Ties. You know, I noticed it more this week than I have any other time. Is anybody else getting a little bit tired of the slapstick? Oh, yeah. And one of our listeners, and I'm sorry, I forget who it was, made the comment that it feels like more and more Ezra and Chopper or Zeb and Ezra, sometimes the trio are sort of becoming the replacement Jar Jars for the series. Like, when they need slapstick, they get really Jar Jar-esque. I personally, I'm finding it really off-putting at this point. It was cute every once in a while, and if the story is a goofy one, fine, whatever. We've got those from time to time, but so far, it seems like it's becoming the running theme for the interactions of those characters, and that's not good at this point. Yes, Ezra's young, yes, Chopper's kind of a pain in the butt, and Zeb's cranky, but we don't need them running around like the three freaking stooges every week. Well, I, I don't mind the slapstick, and you bring up Jar Jar, the character that should never be named again. Zeb is the bruiser, right? He's the bruiser. He's the Chewbacca of the crew, and you never saw kind of Chewbacca playing around kind of like that, you know? So it's kind of, it's new, you know, it's something that we have to get used to. Oh, I but- have to disagree with you. Yes, we did see Chewbacca, not to this extent, but we saw Chewbacca goofing around and being silly. In A New Hope, he's mm-hmm. barking at the mouse droid, making the mouse droid take off, and he thinks that's pretty funny. The second one, he's kind of banging around with 3PO at more than one occasion. Yeah, Chewbacca wasn't as heavy-handed with the slapstick, but it was there. I would disagree about the mouse droid. I just don't think he liked the mouse droid and, and growled at it. I don't think he was trying to play with it. He definitely wasn't giving anybody any noogies. Okay? Yeah, that, that didn't feel at all slapsticky to me. And to answer your question, Zeb should know better. Zeb is 39. <laughs> he's older than, than most of us. <laughs> but he just he's the bruiser. So he should not want to get to do any of this, any of kind of the slapstick and rolling around and doing all that stuff like that. So it is going to take a little get used to. We are in the midst of Disney Star Wars and it is a kid show and it's not as dark as the Clone Wars, but it does take a little getting used to. See, I don't know. For me, I I got a a whole uh, Ben Grimm and Johnny Storm kind of vibe out of it. I I got a kick out of it. I like it. And, you know, you throw Chopper in and, and you've just got, well, Nathan said the Three Stooges aspect of it, but I don't know. For me, I get more of that Fantastic Four back and forth brotherly vibe 
of the three stooges when the three are together i mean it's it seems like they're always playing off of one or the other i mean you know zeb he tells chopper wait till ezra's out of the pit and then flush it and of course chopper does opposite and zeb is genuinely amused which i i thought was kind of ironic that ezra didn't go after zeb thinking you know zeb lied instead he's banging on chopper and i'm thinking to myself i'm like you know, that's kind of a, a, a cool thing to do. You're just sitting there banging on the droid, and the droid's like, he's not really going to get damaged because he's not going to town with that wrench. He's just kind of tinging the outside. But I love the running theme of that. I mean, later when, when Zeb's eating in the in the galley of the ship, you know, and they got the music playing and stuff, and Ezra's still on top riding Chopper, banging away, Hera's not here to save you now! Like, I, I thought that was fun. It kind of reminded me of Brothers, and I, I like that camaraderie sense of family that's going on. You know, and the other running theme that jonathan brought up is that chopper's a homicidal maniac you know he's constantly <laughs> trying to kill ezra he like what was the gas is he trying to poison him it's like you know what's going on with chopper man what's interesting though is it's this episode takes two very different tracks and has two very different tones at one hand we've got back on the ghost where chopper ezra and zeb are being slapstick and at one point i think what ezra lands in zeb's food and you know, they're arguing outside Kanan's cabin, and he's like, <laughs> he's like, they're like, how did you know? And he's like, because you guys are talking so loud. And But then, on the other hand, we have Hera and Sabine on the planet, which is really where I think the meat of this story is, fighting these, these creatures who are directly ripped off of Pitch Black. And, you know, it's, it's a lot darker. And at one point, you know, Hera and Sabine really think they're going to die. But there's also this, this concept of fulcrum, which is something new, and we haven't heard this name before. And we're learning that Hera has this intelligence asset, something. And you get the impression that she knows who it is, but even Kanan doesn't know. And Kanan says to Sabine, when Sabine wants to know you know, who this person is and why do we trust them? You know, that's Hera's deal. And Hera makes the decisions on what missions that they take that are going to cause problems for the Empire and profit for the group. Again, I feeling that this series is taking very much from the old West End Games role-playing game in that it talked a lot in the role-playing game about how the Rebellion worked very much in cells where people didn't know more than they needed to and they really couldn't implicate other cells and that's what i kind of get the sense of what this group is they're a cell in a greater rebellion and Hera alludes to it a little bit i really wonder if fulcrum is going to wind up being like bail organa or somebody that we know or if it's going to wind up being some new character that's some type of the master planner behind the scenes divvying out missions within this sort of fledgling thing that will eventually become the Rebel Alliance uh, and wind up being some big new character we've never met in Star Wars that turns out to be this, you know, almost a, to make a Legends reference, a Thrawn type of manipulator of events to get things done. I'm just on the Rebels side of things. It's, it's an interesting dynamic. It seems somewhat unclear right now whether it is him giving information to them as a Rebel cell to get things done or if he's essentially an informant for them and sort of an asset of theirs. I, mean, I guess it could go both ways. I get the feeling in the sense here, though, and this is not based on any prior knowledge of anything coming up, but you get the sense almost that he's the one who's higher up the food chain, which I'm thinking a Bail Organa type character, someone perhaps that we've seen before. You know, just I don't know, something to this makes it feel like this team, as cool as they are, they don't have the feel to me that they're the center of a new rebellion. If Bail Organa didn't know who they were at first, that doesn't seem like that would make sense. Heck, 
for all we know, Fulcrum contacted them because of what Bale found out about them back in Droids in Distress. I, there's just not enough that we know. It's interesting. It's curious. I'd love to see this play out, just like I want to see more about Sabine's backstory. That's where this episode shines. It takes a Jerry Seinfeld episode about nothing and gives us a couple <laughs> little bits and pieces to really latch onto and hope to see more of within the next, what, slightly less than 20 episodes before theoretically the season's over. You know, I think you got something there, Nathan, and it's going to be really interesting to find out who Fulcrum is. And I have a feeling that it is Bail Organa, and I have a feeling that this senator who is in hiding and who keeps we keep seeing on the Imperial Holonet is Bail Organa as well. I don't think that guy is real. I think they're both Bail Organa, and it'll. that's my – and again, it's not based on anything. It's just the feeling that I have. See, the, the bail angle, I didn't think of before until you mentioned that. Because when Kanan and Sabine and Hera are talking about Fulcrum, Kanan makes a comment about how Fulcrum is an asset of Hera's or, or something along those lines. So I had the feeling, and, and even then, Hera mentioned you know, that, that while the location is correct and the, you know, the, the product is correct, his intel on the amount of people there isn't always correct. So I got the feeling like she was still calling the shots and he was just one person of many that she had feeding and, and fishing for potential missions to hurt the empire that that seems to be her mission you know how can we gum up the empire's works and really put the woods to them see now i find myself thinking that it was the senator travis that that's who it's going to be they introduced him a couple episodes ago we we know that he's a senator in hiding but he still may have imperial contacts he certainly has enough influence to try to break into these hollow net feeds now that's what I thought this episode, what I thought originally when we first saw him and they then went after Luminara because of the information he put out there, I almost thought he was a tool of the Empire and they used him to mm -hmm. kind of flush out the group. But, you know, whoever Fulcrum is, if it is Travis, the Empire could be using him to get the trust of this you know, rebel group, and then lead them into a situation where, you know, they can be eliminated. Because let's think about this. The rendezvous they had here was on a planet that Hera and Sabine almost died. And, you know, interesting that they, his name is Fulcrum, because what is a Fulcrum? Yeah, bounce on a pivot point, something used for leverage uh, against something else. So, yeah, that this is the way the universe will tilt etc etc yeah it's a cool name but again it's one of those things you, you nobody gets to pick their own nicknames you know if he chose the name fulcrum then he certainly has a high opinion of himself right <laughs> it's like my name's big daddy yeah uh no we're sort of dancing around the core story which to me gives us a sense of just how kind of not really lackluster but how little was there of what is supposed to be the core story the ship's damaged they go on the run and here they are essentially stranded for lack of fuel, and we get to see Hera and Sabine play off each other. This was this is a great encounter as far as Sabine goes. She seems a little standoffish, but we learn more about her, and she gets more lines, I think, in this episode than we've ever seen with her. She's almost been shoved to the background most of the time in these episodes so far. Yeah, and what's was that case? The, the case when Hera showed up, there was one that had markings. She saw it. And wouldn't let Sabine get it. I was just like, oh, what is going on there? Because this whole episode focused around that trust. And it was very important to Sabine 
that she have the trust of Canaan and Hera. I mean, that was all part of why she ended up washing out or, or rebelling from the Empire when she was at the Imperial Academy was because she was asking too much questions. And I, I found that that was an interesting thing that even though she's bringing all this stuff up and stuff, Hera still didn't trust her enough to push the box into the ship. You know, when they talk about her being at the Imperial Academy, I don't think that it was that she didn't trust. She did trust and they used or they used her. She did something and she was burned. She talks about following orders blindly and it turned out to be a nightmare. I think she was trained and then she really got a look at what the Empire does and what the Empire stands for. It'd be interesting to really see, you know, how the Empire and how the Imperial Academy was established on Mandalore. I mean, what does Mandalore look like now? And I kind of put this together with things that we already knew about Sabine. She said back way back in Spark of Rebellion when Ezra asked her what happened to her family, and she just gets this look on her face and says the Empire. And now we hear that there was a nightmare, that, that was she forced as a cadet to do something that caused her parents to be killed? Oh, you will line up and shoot every Death Watch member here. But I really did like the dynamic between Hera and Sabine because I don't think we've really seen that before from, I mean, we, their interactions and the whole idea of trust and bonding. And, you know, Hera makes the point that she really put her life in Sabine's hands when Sabine develops this plan to deal with these sort of night creatures. And Nathan, do these things have a name? Are they like the Tibbities? They are, according to the episode guide on StarWars.com, they are Fearnox. That they had, they, they planned to call them mm. Garcors, playing off Rancors. They eventually became Knockfears, which are an, an odd name, and then they just flipped it and became a Fearnox because they wanted to play off of the the already known Minoc. And and for what sort of speaking of things we learned from the episode guide, the place, so we at least have something to call it, is Fort Anaxes, apparently an old Clone Wars installation here. Which was cool, seeing the lardies and stuff crashed around the place. Like, that was a nice little homage back to the Clone Wars. Keep that up. No, I did like that. And I mean, not only the uh, the gunships, but also the arc fighters that were all damaged. That would be an interesting story to find out someday. I mean, if they can do it in some medium, probably not Rebels, to find out what happened to that base and why it was abandoned that way. Well, I can tell you exactly why it was abandoned. It was abandoned because they left a reference to a sunny day in the void in that freaking arc. Because you notice it's those same Redonium canisters that they wind up using for their you know, battle against the Fearnox here that we saw back in the episode with the Republic Commando back in that horrid, horrid Mieber Gascon arc. Do we have to mention that arc every dang episode? Well, this time it's <laughs> relevant, at least. it's They specifically re used those canisters and designed them to look very much like what we got in the Abafar episodes. It's even called out on the episode guide. See, it's not us bringing back the horror like some kind of night terror. It's them. Some Subconsciously, you're trying to find a way to make Sunny Day in the Void relevant, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I'd like to apologize right now to the listeners for bringing up Gascon and Jar Jar in the same episode. <laughs> you know, the ones on Mortis, they... Yeah, never mind. Back to the space waffles. Oh, yes. Zeb's little meal there. Uh. Yeah, they, they, they didn't animate well, but, dude, they're space waffles, and they've been talking about space waffles for a while, so now we see <laughs> space waffles. The, the crew has, at least. 
Lego yes. my ego, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, the fear knocks to me, I mean, the, kind of getting back to what we were talking about with the, the concept here, I, it played out well. I was afraid when we saw the preview and we just sort of saw the face, I was afraid it's yet another, oh, let's throw Gundarks in. Why? Because they're mentioned in Empire. So they had to show up in Clone Wars. Let's use freaking Gundarks again. And to have it at least turn out to be something different, some new kind of creature, I thought that was pretty cool. To have the... There be some type of, again, sort of stolen from pitch black, right? You know, that you know that Hera and Sabine are going to have trouble getting past them, especially while the girl is bleeding. To have it be an actual biological type thing where they can't go into the sun, but they can go into the lights of the ship. So it's not something just super cartoony like, oh, they just can't go in the lights at all. But to make it be something that must be specific to the rays of that sun versus the lights from the ship. I appreciated that. I mean, yeah, it's, you know, it's it's the standard kind of horror dynamic, and it screams pitch black and all that, but it's a cool new type of creature that if you're going to tell this kind of story, at least it was well thought out, it seemed to me. And I do like how they establish that it is only sunlight that they deal with. I, I, it was it was a little detail when the lights are there and they're kind of afraid to go in them and then the creatures kind of reach in and realize, oh, wait a minute, no, it's okay. And then they, they kind of boil out in mass. What do you think about the plan that Sabine came up with to kind of almost blow them up by waves? And I know we talked about referencing those canisters. This is exactly something like you would do playing Republic Commando or something, isn't it? I thought it was a great plan. Uh, they had already called their backup. Uh, for one reason, I don't know why their backup wasn't just in the atmosphere waiting for them to go pick this up, why they were so far away, but that's a question probably sh- we should not ask. All they really needed to do was buy some time for the homies to get there. you know. And so it was a great plan. Wave one, wave two, wave three, wave four. We don't have a plan for wave five. I see. I thought it was a ballsy plan, though. I mean, you know, you know, the rhodium or whatever it was called was an explosive, and I think they got lucky that this stuff was was I don't know old enough that it didn't blow up big enough that that chain reaction didn't just become one big wave of explosion just taking them all out. I mean, those are gigantic canisters of explosive. And yet they didn't explode that big. I mean, when I was looking at them, I'm just like, so what's going to stop wave two from going off when wave one blows up? You know, I mean, that was the thing I was thinking about. I love that. that, And I think Jonathan referenced it earlier in the episode when Heron made the comment about the plan. She's like, hey, you didn't know if that was going to work. And she's like, well, I was having doubts. It's another of these these cool uh, Sabine. Would it be a metaphor type moment, I guess? Is that the word I'm looking for or the personification, whatever, where we've gone from uh, bombs being miracles to canisters of explosive fuel or whatever it is being friends. You know, it's good to have friends. It's a little obvious, right? The plan is shoot the red barrels. Any video game player in the last 10 years knows you want to kill the bad guys when they're coming in waves, shoot the red barrels. I myself had a moment recently playing The Evil Within. I'm running from a bunch of zombie creatures, turn around and start shooting in a barrel. It does nothing, only for me to literally say out loud, oh, expletive, it's not red, and run because I was shooting a blue barrel that wouldn't blow up. It's (laughs) It's the natural response these days, red barrel blow it up but for their plan to work it played out well it would have made sense if they got a few more closer perhaps before blowing them up but it didn't exactly seem until the very end that they really needed that plan quite so much because once they do get onto 
the Phantom and they're shooting down at them or even as they're running up onto it. You know, they're shooting boom, 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 boom. Now it finally causes the barrel to explode. They're shooting boom, 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 shot one in the face, it's dead. Boom, shot one in the face, it's dead. It seems like they were pretty easy to kill with one shot that maybe they didn't need to go through all the explosive stuff. They could have saved the ammo and just gotten to slightly higher ground and just picked them off individually like they seem to be doing all right with until right as the ghost shows up. The peril never really quite got to the fever pitch that I would have expected because of how easy they were picking them off one shot each. And what I found myself wondering is why didn't they use the Phantom's turret? You know, the rear-mounted turret. They could have, I mean, probably wiped out a lot of those creatures a lot sooner if they had used that. Is it possible that they just couldn't tilt it down far enough, though, because of the angle of how it's placed? Well, Harris says that the reason that she didn't want them to go into the Phantom is because these creatures have shown that they could tear up the ship. And she's kind of possessive about her ship, so I don't think she wanted uh, that to be a possibility, that they would go into the Phantom and they would tear up her ship. Speaking as someone whose Mustang just got totaled uh, the other day, that's... Another long story. Uh, must say, no matter how much you love a vehicle, you don't put your life ahead of the vehicle. I can't imagine Hera being willing to possibly die. Her and Sabine, who she considers family, just so that the creatures don't scratch up the ship. There's got to be some other reason not to use the turret. Otherwise, it's you know just the the sin of convenience, so to speak, as Cinema Sin says. Well, I would think that they didn't want to be inside the ship because I believe Baron said that these creatures can tear through metal, and if you're inside the ship, you're trapped because you got to have the you got to have the rear door closed, and if you're trapped and these things you know sort of surround and mob the Phantom, then they they really have no place else to go. Fair point. Now we get to the point where the ghost comes and rescues them, and they open the cargo bay door. And look, Ezra finally has a use for a sling, his slingshot. Man, that weapon is so useless. I'm like a broken record. It's <laughs> it's it's useless, and it's not. There's no level. What is what I'm looking for? There's no um, power. Uh, not power, but there's no lethality consistency. There's no consistency with it. We see in in certain episodes that he's picking off stormtroopers. Then a stormtrooper can take one. Or we see in the Inquisitor fight, you know, he he shoots a couple off the Inquisitor, and the Inquisitor hits it with his lightsaber, and then just takes one. We see here that he jumps off like Mr. Superhero because he's trying to save his girl Sabine, and he hits a couple of these creatures with the slingshot, and it seems to be effective but then one of the creatures gets point blank range in front of him he hits it with the creature and the creature shakes it off so get rid of this this slingshot it's terrible give the kid a blaster give him a lightsaber he's a padawan true that but i think the reason why they shake it off you know the third one the first two when it, it did it, it was it was like when the ghost shows up you know the lights come on they all backed away i mean they get hit they're like oh light i don't know but I think it's time they got to upgrade that thing. You know, let let Sabine get a hold of it and give him a Mando wrist rocket or something because that thing. I'm I'm with you, Baron. It, it is not powerful enough. The consistency is off the charts. But I mean, it seems like in principle it would be a really convenient weapon to have. You know, I mean, it's right there. You're walking around. Nobody even really knows it's there until you kind of reach over and and do the thing. But I mean, at the same time, I kind of like to see him just upgrade it where all he has to do is kind of do an Iron Man, just stick his hand out and just launch some missiles. 
Well, it, it, I can understand that they want that Ezra is supposed to be the end for kids, you know. But what kids nowadays are playing with slingshots anyway? You know, it's like Pharaoh, my son, he don't even know what a slingshot looks like. Mm-hmm. My son made one at camp, but it, it worked for like a whole five minutes. I mean, it doesn't have the same allure as when Tom Sawyer was popular. Yeah. I would say I think the canonical explanation for the slingshot's inconsistency, maybe it's powered by the same midichlorians that power Kanan's Jedi abilities. The inconsistencies <laughs> match. Ezra jumps out to save Sabine, as Baron says, but it ends up that Sabine saves him. And once they're inside the ship, Ezra thanks her, and she goes, don't look too much into it. Did you catch the look between Zeb and Ezra, though, after she said that? You know, Mm -hmm. Zeb's, like, kind of giving him the nudge, like, I think she likes you. I mean, God, I hope they don't go that way, but it it certainly looks like it. Oh, my God. Go ahead. I'm shipping already, man. I I hate to admit it, but I'm already shipping it. (laughs) Man, I hope it does not go there. There's no reason why she would like him. None. There's no reason why she would find that boy attractive. But that she, scene was the reason. I mean, you know, she no, was losing she her sees, life and he risked his, although she had to save him. But, but they're that's, all that's friends. An opening. They're all family. They're going to risk each other's lives all the time. He, She is 16 years old. This kid is 14 years old. 16 year going old, on 15, though. 16-year-old girls look at 25-year-old boys. Okay? They don't look at anything <laughs> lower than that. I mean, that's the way it is. And she's Mandalorian. And we're thinking of Mandalorians. They want hunks. They don't want this kid. I mean, I hope they don't go there. It just doesn't make any sense. There's no reason why she should like him ever. I'm hoping it's something that we get, like, opposite of Anakin and Padme, where theirs was super quick. I'm hoping it's something drawn out where Ezra slowly becomes a man that you could actually see her eventually falling for. That's where where I saw Ezra jumping in front of her was kind of like that manly, you know, show of like, I'll save you. But of course, he's still young and and wet behind the ears. And of course, you know, had to have his own rescue. I I find it very interesting that it's very well known about his affections for Sabine, but Kanan is not saying anything about it. The Jedis aren't supposed to have any attachments. And he's not saying anything about, you know, watch out for Sabine, watch how you feel. She's your sister, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Maybe she just really has a thing for guys with blue hair, big noses, and no lips. Though I, I'm i with Mark. If they do decide to make this into a thing, at least make it drawn out. Give us enough seasons for this to develop into something that, granted, they would have to lose any of the family dynamic, but he's sort of the newcomer and hasn't really looked at her as family yet. So maybe he'll eventually just start looking at her as family that it goes away. But if not, let this be something where he grows into something in her eyes, and it's not two characters who are still at this point in character development you know, getting together or, or hitting it off. The, the age thing is an issue, but Star Wars has always fudged the age thing. I mean, the, as soon as you got Anakin and Padme, uh, the age thing kind of goes out the window somewhat but just to say the character development needs to reach a certain place before they can get together that's something that even star wars i don't think can get away from unless they're going to do a padme and anakin and really sort of shove them together very very quickly and awkwardly there needs to be a change in where they are as people as characters before that type of thing could happen and barrett you made the point about nobody's talking about how about how jedi shouldn't get into relationships I'm sorry, we didn't really talk about it, but earlier in this episode, Kanan and Hera, you cannot tell me that they don't have some sort of relationship. They were bickering like a couple. That sort of play interaction, yeah, there is more there than just, you know, pals. 
And she says deer or something, too. But again, yeah. if we can reference backwards to A New Dawn, which I know the listeners are like, man, stop referencing a freaking book. This is a TV show. Welcome to the new canon. It's all equal. Literally, it's all planned out ahead of time. It's designed to be just as valid. If we go back to A New Dawn, Kanan is not that type of Jedi. Kanan is not the Jedi who's following the rules, doing the things the Jedi Order taught him. I mean, the, the backstory of Kanan going into A New Dawn is as he's bounced around, he's had all kinds of flings with women, but they've only ever been flings. He's never let himself get attached. Again, not because of the Jedi thing with attachment. He's basically said the Force can just kiss its butt. Nobody cares. Because, you know, what has the Force ever really done for him except get all the people he knew killed, etc., etc.? In his case, he's not getting attached because he doesn't want to be found out. And it's Hera, in a sense, that intrigues him enough that maybe he wants to try to pursue it, even if, at the time, she's not into him at all or anything because of him being such a fly-by-night-seeming guy that doesn't seem to latch on to anything. I don't think the character... I mean, we assume going into this that the character of Kanan, because he was a Padawan at the time of Order 66, because he was a Jedi and now he's the Jedi kind of coming back into his own, he must be trapped in the same dogmatic ideas the Jedi were, or that maybe he's starting to break them. I don't think there's any starting to about it. It seemed like in this canon, they're essentially making him as a Jedi the... for you know, to make a bad pun, the loose cannon. He gets to kind of do what he wants. All the Jedi abilities, none of the responsibility that goes with it from the old teachings. He's very much a Luke-era Jedi before Luke is a Jedi. Yeah, I mean, in A New Dawn, he was drunk a lot, which which goes against, you know, most of the teachings of the Jedi. But, you know, it's dear, and she also calls him love. I mean, Hera calls him those things in front of the other crew members, too, which was something that jumped out at me right at the beginning. It was like, oh, what's going on more? I mean, and, and that's something I'm still in the middle of a, of a new dawn. I'm hoping that they get into that a little more because I'm, I'm curious as to why those are the particular, uh, you know, nicknames she has for him and vice versa. You know, it could be just in her genes. You know, she is a Twi'lek. Twi'leks are supposed to be the sexy creatures of the Star Wars universe. She just may talk like that. Hera is someone who's not that. I don't want to see them try to turn her into that. She's the one who's gotten away from the stereotypical BS. But, you know, Nathan, as the other individual who's completed A New Dawn, I didn't see it until this discussion. The relationship between Kanan and Hera almost was sort of like the, the prototype for the relationship that we seem to be seeing between Ezra and Sabine, isn't it? Kind of. I mean, they're you've got sort of the the snarkiness, but it's I don't think it's something that anyone who's watching the show is going to see that. I, I think there it's more of like a parallel between say Ezra and Sabine versus Leia and Han at different points, as opposed to the Hera and Kanan thing. We're not getting that Hera Kanan resistance or anything like that here because all we got was back in the book itself. I'm. It'd be interesting to find out whether it actually is a relationship the way it sounds or if they've come to essentially an agreement that they're not going to be together. But because that was such an issue between them for a long time, that turns into the way they have banter. We haven't seen them kiss. We haven't seen them hold hands. We haven't really seen them do anything that necessarily says that Kanan and Hera are a couple. But they do get the best character moments out of this episode. I mean, you got the – yep. I knew there was some way this was going to be my fault. I mean, that is the perfect human moment in this episode out of the entire thing. And it happens between Hera and Kanan, that same kind of being comfortable with each other um, that we don't seem to yet have with a lot of the other characters in the mix. So 
don't know. I would say the jury's out on whether they're actually together. I figure they probably are, but I don't know. Give us something definitive, or unless this is another seed to be played out later in the season or something. Yeah, they're coffee buddies, nothing more. <laughs> the one thing that I have to say about this episode is, despite the fact that some of the storylines may have been a little bit weak with the whole you know, Night Beasts and the damaged ship, the relationship moments and the dynamics that they give us between Hera and Kanan and Kanan and Sabine and Hera and Sabine may be some of the best that we've seen in this series thus far. Yeah, it's like the overall plot was pretty weak. It had that pitch black aspect of it that it was really leaning on. But the character part was what really sold it for me as well. I mean, the journey and and the aspect of where we are going to possibly go from this. I mean, with Fulcrum, with more of Sabine's background, more of, of the trust that she's seeking, that kind of stuff. I mean, that's the stuff that I'm enjoying so far in each of these quote-unquote filler episodes. I mean, uh, for me, I think that's that can be one of the best things about a filler episode is when it's done right and they come back to it later when they weren't really intending to at first. End of the episode, what do we get? I mean, Hera still doesn't tell Sabine anything she wants to know. All she really says is, I trusted you with my life. Now you should trust me. So she really doesn't tell Sabine anything that Sabine wanted to know anyway. And we still don't know what's in the crate. And that kind of a quality, though, of a good leader or even a good head of a family, even in a sense here, if you're dealing with sort of a parent-child relationship, that you build the trust and you ease out the tension in the situation. But if there's something that the other person shouldn't know or something that you're not going to bend on, you don't bend. But you find a way to essentially make the other person okay with that. It's a, it's a type of more subtle interaction and subtle relationship building thing that Star Wars doesn't really tend to do. I mean, the closest we get to something that's sort of a subtle thing is the realization, I guess, when it comes to Ahsoka, where she tells Anakin when he's asking about, you know, he says about how he want, he knows what it's like to want to leave the Order, and she says, I know, and just essentially walks away. The, the thought that she knew all this time, and you sort of get that sense of, wow, underplaying all these other moments if we rewatch the series – what must she be thinking if she knew? You know, sort of that something under the surface that's guiding it. Here, the under the surface, there's the thing she can't tell. And she's going to keep trying not to tell it, but in a subtle way, she's going to manage to smooth that relationship out. And that elephant in the room is going to shrink down to the size of a dust moat and not be an issue anymore. The other thing about this episode that I guess speaks to the strengths of this series or what you know the, what it looks like is going to be the strengths of this series is in Clone Wars we would kind of lean toward a lot of these loose ends being tied up by the end of the episode or by the end of the arc Rebels doesn't feel the need to do that it'll lay little bits here little bits there some of them will be picked up next episode some may wait a couple of weeks to be picked up but this this feels a lot less tied up with a bow and I think that's by design. You know, I think that again, when we were, when I went to the WonderCon panel this year on Rebels, Filoni made it a point that he wanted to get away from things that were familiar with the Clone Wars. You know, when he decided that they were going to have Hera as a main character, you know, he made a point to say that they wanted to keep away from any female character with horns. No Togrudas, no Zabrax. None of that. You know, they wanted to have something different, and he wants to have a different feel, albeit using 
elements from movies, kind of like the Zillow Beast, you know, and we get these creatures from Pitch Black. So it's kind of the same familiar feel, and he does reference things from the Clone Wars. But as far as the storytelling and the way that we're going to get a season worth of episodes, it's it's a lot different. We're not getting any arcs. He doesn't, like you said, he doesn't feel the need to wrap things up with a, uh, a bow. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. You know, it doesn't feel wrong. It just makes me want more. And so in that, maybe he's doing a good job. Oh, I definitely think that he's doing a good job with this. I mean, yeah, maybe some of the some of the choices wouldn't be what I would would have done. But overall, I still am really looking forward to every new episode. And I think that being said, the series is doing its job. I don't know as far as this, the, the not wrapping up with the bow being a good thing or not. I mean, I, I do like the fact that they leave the threads there. They're pulling a John Jackson Miller when it comes to Star Wars, with ironically the guy behind A New Dawn also. Um, they're pulling the Babylon 5 type of seeding into it. But again, really, I think season one of Babylon 5 is a good parallel here because anytime I suggest that show to people, I say just – Stick with it through season one. Trust me, it gets really good and stuff will start to tie together. But just bear with it and get through season one because of how many of those episodes do wind up feeling like filler episodes that you could really do without. There's a couple minutes of stuff that matters. And then other stuff, you're just like, oh, why did I just spend this much time necessarily watching this episode? At least it felt like it or feels like it to those who hear it really hyped up and then wind up getting through season one. I think that's kind of what we got here. The fact that they're not doing arcs, at least not obvious arcs, you know, four episodes, three episodes, whatever, means that each episode, you say it doesn't get tied up with a neat little bow, and not every part of it does, but it feels like each episode is so self-contained that it loses some of the potential that it could have to stretch these stories out. Spark of Rebellion isn't my favorite of the series thus far. That's Rise of the Old Masters. But Spark of Rebellion had something going for it that... These other ones have it, and that's the fact that it was double the length. It was an hour show, basically, instead of half an hour. It just seems as though by not creating arcs, you get situations like these. Hey, we need to seed in this plot thing, this plot thing, this plot thing. We're going to put in a ton of fluff to make it work. And there's only so long that you can do that and create these fluff filler episodes that maybe aren't really filler. Maybe they're seeded with stuff that we need between the really impactful ones before people start tuning out because we want the really cool exciting ones and these may be great for a while but character moments within extreme fluff aren't going to be able to carry any series for very long i really hope that at least by the back half of this season or season two they at least start looking at two-part episodes they start stretching it out i mean i'm watching the 1966 batman series it came out the same day as season six of clone wars on home video right now and the fact that they were able to do two episodes with the cliffhanger in one, pick it up with the other one, that was the ultimate crack for TV viewers at the time because they liked the show, they got the excitement, and even if it was just two little half-hour parts, it kept them watching. I don't see this series right now doing a lot of stuff with episodes like this or Droids in Distress or Fight or Flight that's going to keep people watching. Maybe it's something like with Domino Squadron, though, where, you know, you get part of it now and another part of it next season, another part of it later, where the story slowly grows over time in this particular character growth for Sabine and stuff. 
Oh, I'm not sure that that's going to happen at all. If anything, this these episodes seem really short. And when you had Spark of Rebellion, that was an hour. It just felt like maybe this show needs to be an hour long. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. That's one thing I've been saying since since the Clone Wars. I mean, the arcs proved that Star Wars does a lot better as an hour long. I mean, Star Trek was doing great at an hour long for his TV shows. And, and sometimes there were times where that felt like it was too little. You know, so I, I'm hoping that we get a lot of multi arcs to be continued, things of that nature. But you know, one thing for me that was like a bow on this episode was the score, though. I mean, there's a moment when the ghost arrives to save the day, and you've got this the, the score is just bumping along. I mean, I really enjoying the musical choices. Another one was when Zeb's eating the uh, space waffles. You know, they had like some kind of pop rock music playing in the background of the ship. You know, kind of going with when Edward's like, "Oh, Hera's not here to save you now." It's like. Hair's away, and they're all sitting there playing, man. And I, I thought that was classic. It's like the boys are totally having a blast, even though Kanan's in the back trying to meditate and can't. But, uh, you know, it was just the classic mom's gone, let's party. Hey, at least they didn't have uh, Ezra sliding around in his underwear. <laughs> you know, one thing I wanted to mention about Kanan meditating is that in the recent Star Wars stories we've gotten in the prequel trilogy, every time Yoda was meditating or Anakin was meditating or we see a Jedi meditating, they're trying to communicate with somebody or something. And did you get the sense that Kanan was trying to reach out and communicate with another Jedi? No, I think he was just trying to get some peace and quiet from the uh, raucous kids. Well, there's that question of, of, you know, now that it's not Legends-based anymore, is does him touching the force, does that send out waves that the Inquisitor might be feeling as well? I mean, there's always that aspect of it. It's like, you know, are, are they going to have to hide all force uses? Does that still matter in canon? I mean, you know, you bring up a very good question, Baron. What was he doing? But it's another, again, looking back to the, the way that I look at it in terms of just the character's human moments, he gets another of the greatest human moments of the episode. It's not the interaction between Sabine and Hera. It's stuff like his comment to Hera earlier and here, you know, you know, he knows what's going on. Why? Because he heard you through the freaking door, right? I mean, that's a dad and the kids, you know. <laughs> All too well, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Well, guys, I want to thank you for joining me to discuss this episode. And next week, we're going to be discussing the episode Empire Day. And from all indications, it looks like it's going to be a good one. Hey, I've already seen it. Mark says he's already seen it. We're not going to ruin it for you. <laughs> but Sabine dies. Oh, man, I was going to say that. <laughs> and Ezra still wants her. <laughs> well, and he got a nose job. It's bigger. Oh, you know, you just said something. What if they bring in death troopers into Rebels? <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everyone. Good night. Wotini! Good night. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Rebels Roundtable is hosted by... Jonathan, Barrent, Jen, Nathan, Mark, and Dan. Interact with us online at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable or on Twitter at rebelsround. Also, be sure to visit rebelsroundtable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of Venganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. We invite you to visit RepublicForces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, droids, Ewoks, and the Clone Wars micro-series. 
and check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, which you can find among the Second Airborne Division podcast network at StarWarsReport.com. Star Wars Rebels and all that the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable is copyright 2014, all rights reserved. Oh, goody, Whistler's back. <laughs> and he's got theme music. <laughs> there you go. Oh, wow. Even Scroll better. That. Damn. Ambitious much for a piece of... <laughs> I, we don't have to cover it all. Okay, seriously, that better be stopping. Oh yeah, it is. See, how do I mute you? I got. I need to figure. Is there is there a way I can mute him? No. <laughs> oh, but hey, uh, Jonathan, I did research the Phantom and how it docks, and it does dock both ways. So, so basically, oh, Mark, you're saying that the ghost goes both ways? Yes, it does. Got an any in and out. He explains. Spectre seven. So Maybe it's a uh, sphincter seven. <laughs> I was thinking it and didn't say it. <laughs> I was just thinking that you know, as they used to say on the old Star Wars on Direct show with Danny Pepin and all, uh, the men just love the Leku because they're like handles. You know that, that ain't making it in. That's right? not staying oh, in. I was just going to say that's not staying in. <laughs> that's, at least, that's, that, at right? least that's an outtake. Come on, man. That's not staying in. I, I, I knew when Chopper I said goes, it. It, was, <laughs> it was no way. At least I didn't reference it the way that they reference it because their reference back in the day used to be Ayla Secure and the line was Ride That Jedi. I didn't go there oh, because that's God. just wrong. What? <laughs> <laughs> And next week, we're going to be discussing the... Empire Day. Yeah, I know. I know that. I'm just waiting for dogs oh. to shut up. I was reminded of the old joke. Uh, for, and I'm sure you could assume why I, I was reminded of the old joke, because it has nothing to do with rebels or forces or anything like that. It just reminds me of the old joke about the, uh, uh, the, the penguin that's sitting by the broken down car. And a mechanic comes by and takes a look to see what's wrong. And he says, oh, I see what the problem is. You blew a seal. And the penguin says, no, that's just frost on my beak. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, we've got our, I, I think we've got our crowning blooper. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, Nate. Uh, be seen that between the handlebars for the handlebars. <laughs> What? And that, yeah. Oh, oh, the handle. Oh, maybe he'll be the getting twilight handlebars. And I'm thinking, what do they use that for? Oh, <laughs> okay. Okay. I finally got the joke. <laughs> okay, okay. Will you please stop talking? <laughs>